I'm Liz Sauer, and this is Ghosts in the Burbs, a podcast of ghost stories from Wellesley, Massachusetts. A warning, adults who use adult language told me these frightening tales, these ghost stories, aren't for kids. Thank you, Amanda McSweeney-Gehan, Jenny Sheridan Pecoraro, and Rebecca Robinson for donating on Patreon to support this podcast. And a special thanks to Candace Carroll, whose name we'll use in place of this next story's haunted, or rather, stalked, neighbor. I'm not sleeping very well. My latest hot topic, of which I speak to anyone who will listen, is Oprah's Super Soul Sunday podcast. I love Oprah. I grew up watching her every weekday at, I think, 4 p.m. I believe in her. I believe that she wants me to be a better, more actualized person, or whatever. I've been thinking a lot about my interview with Natalie, the one with the gin, and that thinking may have triggered a sort of midlife crisis. I feel torn between the life I've spent the last 38 years building and the one that I'm actually meant to live. I suspect that if I could just get the chipmunk chattering away in my mind constantly to shut the fuck up for a second, I might find revelation there, in the silence. And I think that silence is screaming at me to stop. I also suspect that we all have that nagging suspicion. Maybe I'm just projecting, but my need to slow down and clear out all the noise and clutter is overwhelming lately. And it's a lot harder than it seems, and not everyone is happy about it. But I can't escape the feeling that something is coming. Something big and bad and life-changing, and if I don't clear the decks, I won't have the strength to weather the storm. Something bad walked into Candace Carroll's life, but it wasn't big. It was little, and it turned her perfect world upside down. We're on to ghost story number 33, Tiny Teeth. The Power Patagonia Crew is a Wellesley social faction that I find incredibly intriguing. It's a group of overachieving, active lifestyle women with big families and big careers. A clique of neurotic, uber-controlled, and controlling women who will never accept less than a 10 out of 10 in every area of their lives, they consider the setbacks of modern adulthood opportunities for growth. Burst sewage pipe in the basement? A chance to learn more about sustainable building materials. Infertility? Led them to the discovery of the benefits of the raw food diet school vacation, an occasion to spend time working with the kids on extracurricular STEM projects. Candace Carroll, the subject of our next creepy encounter, is a stereotypical member of the PPC. Unlike the spin class set who display their hard-won physiques with tight Lululemon gear, Candace's crowd opts for less form-fitting apparel. Their uniform consists of fleece jackets, nano-puff vests, worn-in t-shirts from Northeast Ski Mountains, flat front colorful shorts in the summer, and boot cut, not skinny, jeans, and cooler months. Candace has tried CrossFit and various boot camps, the Whole30 and Atkins, but she feels most in control of her weight when she's running five miles every day and meticulously tracking food intake. It may appear that she is simply devoted to eating healthy whole foods from sustainable sources, but terror at the thought of gaining weight drives this particularly insidious form of disordered eating. It's a specific brand of eating disorder that is rampant in this town, and it's tricky to spot. After all, what's wrong with healthy eating? What's wrong with knowing every single ingredient in your foods? And what could possibly be wrong with not wanting to be fat? Nothing, 
unless those thoughts become a constant punishing buzz in the back of your mind. Candace has four kids, four boys. Timmy, age 11, Christopher, age 9, Jason, age 7, and Daniel, age 5. Oh, and she's a life coach. She owns her own successful business and guides other women to reach their full potential by identifying and striving towards their true calling. I used to be intimidated by women like Candace. Their confidence and ambition, their tight bodies and wash-and-go looks, the organic vegan children being shuttled from here to kingdom come for enrichment activities left me feeling less than. Their tendency to tweak and or correct other people in conversations. Actually, it only takes 22 minutes to get to Boston. Made me feel defensive and dumb. But if the suburbs have taught me anything, it's that looks can be deceiving. Candace's problem began in a home in Poets' Corners, a neighborhood whose streets boast the names of dead white male poets like Longfellow and Tennyson. The teardown movement hasn't yet affected this part of town, so the neighborhood maintains a vintage New England vibe. Well-cared-for homes with mature landscaping and deep front lawns stand proudly along winding, hilly streets. Dense foliage creates a picturesque landscape in warm months. In cool months, the bare trees betray the aging neighborhood's flaws. The Carroll's home was on Thackeray Road. After I spoke with Candace, I drove by the property, a large brick colonial with black shutters and a red front door, the very image of New England living. The plot was buffered from Route 9 by a section of the town forest, a 221-acre piece of conservation land that includes Longfellow Pond, Ollie Turner Park, woodlands, brooks, marshes, and four and a half miles of walking trails. The Carroll's house was at the north edge of the forest. Interestingly, the parking area for this green space is located at the south end of the park, just steps from the public garden where our old psychic friend Molly Vale was overcome by her grinning man. I received an email from Candace in late February from ccarol at lifecoachlife.com. It read, Good morning. I'm a fellow Wellesleyan, and I understand you are in the process of acquiring tales of paranormal encounters. I have an interesting story to share about my previous home. If you are interested, please respond to this email address so that we may find a time to discuss my experience. Be well, be you. Regards, Candace. Hmm. I thought, and googled Candace's name immediately. Her website described her as an expertly trained life coach born and bred to help other women pursue their dreams and cut all ties to any circumstance, thought pattern, individual, or group holding them back from their best life. If the testimonials were to be believed, then Ms. Carroll was really good at helping women to improve their life circumstances. One woman wrote that Candace had helped her to lose 37 pounds and find the discipline to write and publish her first book. Another woman credited Candace with giving her the tools she needed to open her first restaurant and ditch her husband, which she described in more empowering terminology. There were testimonials from women who had overcome all sorts of sticky situations. On the About Me page of her website, Candace smiled alongside her husband and four children, the two younger kids were strapped into seats behind both Candace and her husband's bikes. The older two kids sported their own rides. Candace was toned and glowing with health. She smiled widely, 
but her eyes bore the intensity of a mother willing her progeny into the perfect get-a-look-at-my-healthy-active-family photo. Her husband looked genuinely happy and relaxed. I emailed her back, incredibly curious about what it was that had dared to haunt this woman. We arranged to meet at Coco Beat, the newest vegan juicing joint in town. We recognized each other immediately. She must have Googled me, too. And we each picked out a juice. Feeling adventurous, I chose the McGregor's Garden, a blend of several vegetables. It wasn't horrible. I also picked out a couple of desserts to bring home. We sat at a table at the end of a long bench, no doubt built with sustainable and or reclaimed materials. Candace took the bench. I took a metal sky blue chair across from her. We talked about our families, and then she proceeded to grill me about my blog. How did I come up with the concept? Was it profitable? Had I considered hiring an editor and a marketing liaison? How many hits did I get per day, per week? What was my ultimate goal for the blog? I fielded the questions awkwardly at first, and then even more awkwardly. When she asked me about my ultimate goal, I had to stop her. Honestly, the whole thing sort of snowballed out of control. My goal, if you can call it that, was to hear ghost stories, and I've always enjoyed writing, and it all just sort of grew from that, I guess. I rambled. Then you're in the sweet spot, Candace said with meaning. You are right where passion and success collide. With some intentional shifts, you could be so much more successful. Oh, well, I hedged. I mean, I'm sure I could do a better job at getting the stories out more regularly, but I have other things I like to do. Well, other things I need to do, really, like other responsibilities and stuff, so I'm pretty happy with the way things are. Candace sat forward in her chair, gave me what I think was supposed to be a concerned and meaningful look, and said, Are you truly happy with pretty happy? Are you life coaching me right now? I asked, forcing a laugh. Candace sat back. Sorry. I suppose it's become habit. I have this gift of seeing the potential in people, and it lights a fire within me when I see someone who, with just a little bit more intention and focus, could take her life to the next level. Well, thanks, I guess, but I don't think I can handle leveling up right now. Women put limits on the amount of success they believe they can achieve, Candace said, matter-of-factly. Take a man with your writing ability and the audience you've built. Would he settle for pretty happy with everything? No. He would build on it, advertise it, get a book deal out of it. You deserve to be recognized and compensated for your hard work. Don't limit yourself with small thinking, Liz. As women, we can have and do it all if we just focus and apply ourselves. Bullshit, I thought, but did not say. It's about prioritizing and leaning in, Candace pressed. There's no way Candace could have known it, but leaning in is a real bitch of a trigger phrase for me. It's right up there with natural birth. I had to force myself not to begin a monologue about entitlement, affluence, self-absorption. I took a breath and then a sip of green juice, wishing it were Chardonnay, and said, Well, if I ever want your advice, I'll be sure to reach out. Then I opened the organic coconut date balls I'd intended to save for dessert that night and popped one in my mouth. I don't want to be pushy, Candace said forcefully. I'm just suggesting that you play up what makes you different, what makes you shine. Okay, sure, I said, cutting her off with a smile. Here's the thing, though. I need to pick up Kat at play school in about 45 minutes, and I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about your haunting. 
Of course, she said quickly, but it wasn't a haunting, more of a creature problem. What kind of a creature? It wasn't any animal I've ever seen. Tell me everything, I said, pleasantly surprised to hear Candace had a monster story to share. It was supposed to be our forever house, the place we intended to put down roots and raise the boys. The lot was ideal, located on a lazy street and the yard back down to town forest, and Rosemary Brook wasn't 50 feet back into those woods. We hadn't any intention of moving, but Tim noticed the listing on Zillow. He's always watching the market. And it looked like our dream home, so we poked our heads in at the open house. I know how that goes, I said. We just did the same thing. Really? You're moving? Yes, but go on, I said, not wanting her to get sidetracked again, trying to shine up my life. Well, the house was quite big. Five bedrooms, three and a half baths, finished basement, and the kitchen was only three years old. There was a basketball hoop in the driveway, and the yard was large enough that I could put in some raised beds and grow a proper garden. It just felt right. We weighed all the pros and cons, and in the end, it seemed ridiculous not to put in an offer. And once we did, I knew it was as good as done. Tim knows real estate, and he's very competitive. We were up against three other families, so we waived all contingencies and offered well above asking. Real estate in this town is cutthroat, I commented. You just need to know how to play the game, she replied smugly. I sipped my vegetable juice and suppressed an eye roll. The house wasn't perfect. There were some projects that needed attention, but I really felt at home there. We all did. And the weird animal? The kids were the first to interact with the creature. They came upon it as they played in the woods. On summer mornings, I schedule outdoor free time for the boys between 8 and 10. Typically, they'd play basketball for a little while in the driveway and then explore the forest behind the house while I worked in the garden. They knew to go no further than the stream so they could hear when I called them and to work on their Lego or circuit building projects. I believe the first time they mentioned the creature, we were on the porch having lunch, and the little one, Daniel, suggested we leave a bowl of kale chips out for Fuzzy. Timmy corrected him. Her name's not Fuzzy. We decided to call her Tiny Teeth. I assumed they'd made up an imaginary friend. I asked what this Fuzzy Tiny Teeth was like, and Christopher described her as sloth-like, but with shorter back legs and very long arms. It was a girl monster? Candace nodded her head. Yes, they always referred to it as a female. I don't know why. Maybe they just figured it was female because it didn't have a penis. I tried and failed to suppress a giggle. Gross. Candace nodded but did not share the laugh. The boys told me that the animal stood on its short back legs and its arms reached down to the ground. It had a sort of piggish nose, ears flat to its round head, and tiny gray eyes. They described its rows of tiny teeth in detail. It being summer, I assumed they were influenced by one of the Shark Week programs we watched together, but they insisted that fuzzy tiny teeth was real and that she played alongside them at the stream, splashing water and throwing stones. Ugh, that's kind of weird, I said. I agree. It felt too detailed of a description for an imaginary friend. Daniel spoke of her shiny belly. When I asked him to elaborate, Jason explained that the thing's stomach was scaly, like a lizard's. What color did they say it was? I asked. Pitch black, except around its eyes. 
They said her eyes had a ring of tan-colored fur around them, and the scales on its belly were a light brown. Christopher bragged that her claws cut right through a tree branch he'd held out to her. Nope, I insisted. In all honesty, I didn't think much about it. We kept close to our summer weekday schedule, and I was happy they'd come up with a creative, imaginary game that kept them all entertained. It gave me pause when they decided as a group to forego their daily half-hour of iPad time to play in the woods, but what mother would argue against kids asking to play outside rather than sit indoors with the electronics? Anyhow, Tim and I were in the yard one evening, enjoying cocktails while he grilled salmon. The kids were off playing in the woods, and I was just about to call them for dinner when they burst through the trees, close to hysterical, over something that had happened with their imaginary friend. Tim demanded they settle down, and the boys elected Christopher to speak on their behalf. He explained as calmly as he could that Daniel had been leaning over the stream when he had slipped and fallen into the water. Chris explained that fuzzy, tiny teeth had scurried onto Danny's back and held his head down under the water. I saw that Daniel was soaked to the bone, but it was such an incredible story that Tim and I couldn't entertain it. The boys were appalled that we did not immediately believe their story. Jason insisted that he had had to hit the creature with a tree branch several times before it released Danny. It was an incredible story, and the boys were believably spooked, but I chalked it up to them carrying the imaginary game too far. The thing was, Candace paused a moment, staring into her cashew milk latte. They didn't go into the woods to play after that. In fact, I could barely get them to go outside at all, except for out to the driveway to play basketball. Even then, they insisted that I stay in the front yard with them. You thought they were completely making it up, though? I asked. At the time, yes. I had no reason to believe them. It was strange they would carry the story so far, especially because they faced consequences for Danny falling in the water. Their iPads were taken away for a week. I felt they had made the story up to cover for some other accident that had happened to Danny involving the water, and that they had convinced him to go along with the lie. No more playing in the woods, and no more iPads for a week. It struck me as odd that they did not push back against those repercussions, but I also assumed that whatever had actually happened had frightened the boys enough that they knew they needed stricter boundaries. The summer carried on, and I didn't think any more of their creature until something began attacking my kitchen garden, systematically pulling out my plants row by row and destroying them. I knew it wasn't bunnies doing the damage. They would eat the food, not simply rip it out of the ground. I thought perhaps a skunk or some other critter was digging around for grubs in the garden. I even thought it might be one of the neighborhood dogs. It's the law to keep them on a leash or fenced in, you know? People treat them like children, as though everyone else will be overjoyed to see them traipsing around the neighborhood, Candace said passionately. I can't imagine having an animal in the house. No matter how you care for them, they're filthy. I bit my tongue and added this to the list of things that made Candace and I incompatible. The dog hater continued, I put in tall mesh fencing around the garden, but still, over the course of a week, it was completely destroyed. It was truly disheartening. I couldn't find any help on the gardening blogs I follow, and googling the problem didn't result in any help either. I won't say the boy's fuzzy, tiny teeth friend didn't come to mind as the culprit, but I was still certain that he was imaginary at that time. But then Timmy made a comment about the creature. Mom, it's our fault she ruined your garden. She's mad that we won't play with her anymore. 
Ugh, chills, I breathed. It did give me pause, Candace admitted. And when the carcasses began to appear, that's when I gave weight to their stories. I shook my head at her, wanting to ask her to skip what I knew was coming. Call it ESP, but I just knew it was going to be about animals. Dead, cute, fuzzy animals. I found the first one at the back door. I was going outside to bring in the pillows from the lawn furniture because we were expecting rain. I tripped right over it. It was a rabbit, big one, and something had torn it apart. It didn't look as though it had been eaten at all, just killed and brutally at that. I used a shovel to pick it up and toss it back into the woods. I was determined to ignore all the signs that we had a problem, and I just went about my errand and began collecting the pillows. I had my back to the woods when I heard something land behind me, a thud on the grass. It gave me a jolt. Candace gave an exaggerated shiver. I turned around slowly, and there was the rabbit, the carcass. Someone or something had thrown it back out of the woods, and whoever had done it was watching me. Leaves rustled at the tree line, and I felt such dread. I don't know how else to describe it other than primal. It was a primal fear. I began backing towards the house, and I was able to pick up the shovel and hold it in front of me like a weapon until I was able to slip. I ran to the front and called the boys into the house. They had actually been getting into some basketball time before the weather turned. I didn't tell them what had happened. I I insisted that they play inside for the rest of the day. By the afternoon, I felt calm enough to ask Timmy and Christopher to tell me more about their imaginary friend. I didn't want the little boys to overhear, so I sent them down to the basement to play. We were in the kitchen. The room had this large window over the sink that overlooked the backyard. It was one of the things I loved about the house. I could cook and keep an eye on the boys in the yard at the same time. I had the older boys sit at the kitchen island. Their viewpoint was towards the window, and I stood leaning against the sink, the window at my back. The day had gotten gray, and it was drizzling outside. I asked the boys to tell me about fuzzy, tiny teeth. I asked them to describe her to me again, to tell me about their interactions. I asked if she'd ever been aggressive before the incident with Danny in the stream. They looked at one another, and then Jason admitted that the creature had led them to some dead animals a few times, as if it were showing off for them. As we were talking, all of a sudden we heard Danny and Jason screaming for me in the basement. I ran to the basement door and met them as they thundered up the steps. Mom, she's here at the window. She's trying to get in. They were frantic. I bent down and tried to get them to tell me exactly what was happening. The only windows we have in the basement are those small rectangular shaped ones at ground level. It's not possible to open them. I didn't understand what they were saying. As I was trying to calm them down, Timmy started screaming. She's out there, Mom. She's in the yard. I see her. Look. I spun and ran to the window, and I caught my first glimpse of the thing. I only saw its back, and it was just before it leapt into the woods, but what I saw made my blood run cold. I do think it was an animal, but not one like I'd ever seen before. It had these short legs that seemed to hardly bend as it ran. It was upright, but its long arms sort of helped it run along. Its hands or paws, whatever, slapped the ground as it scurried away. It had tight, curly black hair, sort of like a poodle, and it had a sort of unnaturally round head. And when I thought about it afterwards, when I was describing it to Tim, I realized that I hadn't seen any ears on the thing. How big was it? I asked. 
a little taller than the lawn chairs, so I would guess up to my hip, Candace replied. In other words, it was as tall as my five-year-old. How could something like that be living in the woods without anyone knowing about it? I don't know, Candace admitted. I drilled the boys that afternoon. Once I'd calmed them down and made sure that all the doors and windows were secured, we sat in the living room, and I mean, I feel terrible about it, but I didn't want them out of my sight, so I just let them watch television for the rest of the day. I sat in a chair facing the window so I could have a view of the backyard. I sat in that chair with one earbud in, listening to NPR to keep me from going crazy until Tim got home. Did you think to call anyone? Like animal control or anything? Not that day. I was worried they wouldn't believe me. I was also worried that maybe the boys getting themselves all worked up had gotten me into a state where I saw something that wasn't really there. Like maybe it was a raccoon or a neighborhood dog, but my fear had morphed it into a monster. I wasn't ready to completely believe what was happening. What did your husband say? For the first time, I saw a crack in Candace's facade. A look of sadness, anger, surfaced, and as quickly as it appeared, it was gone. He's totally rational, you know. He agreed that my imagination carried me away because the boys were so upset. But you saw what you saw, I argued. Right, I know that. I mean, I knew it, but he was very convincing. And it was a relief to think that I had just gotten carried away with the boys' panic. I wasn't ready to let them go play outside, and I certainly wasn't rushing to get back to work on the mess in my garden. But I was willing to believe that what I had seen had simply been a big animal. I caught myself shaking my head and quickly asked, Then what? Well, then Tim saw it, and he believed me. I gasped and smiled, happy that this rational husband of hers had been proven wrong. Candace smiled back at me. I got the kids out of the tub that night, and Danny couldn't find his dinosaur, so I sent Tim downstairs to look for it, but it was nowhere to be found. Jason remembered that Danny had the stuffed animal with him when they were out playing basketball that morning. Oh, hell no, I insisted. Candace nodded. Yes, and I was not going out there to get it. Tim was... She paused briefly. Dismissive when I warned him of going out in the dark. He laughed it off and grabbed a flashlight from the mudroom as I continued to get the kids ready for bed. The next thing I know, Tim is stomping up the stairs yelling, It's on the roof! Everybody downstairs! Now! Oh my god! The kids began to freak out and we were all talking at once. Tim silenced everyone and sent us all downstairs into the living room. He put a call into the police, and they connected him with animal control, but because it was after hours, he could only leave a message. We had the kids sit on the couch with an iPad so we could figure out what to do. He was afraid the thing was going to get into the house. What exactly did he see? Candace sighed. Tim said that he went out the side door next to the garage and was shining the flashlight around the edge of the driveway when he heard something behind him. He said it sounded like something had walked past him, so he turned and flashed the light towards the garage, but there was nothing there. He was standing there trying to figure out what it could have been when he heard a sound coming from above the garage. He shined the light onto the roof, and the thing was up there, crouched and leaning towards him, watching. He said it looked like it was ready to launch itself at him. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, I breathed. 
He didn't know if he could make it back to the door without it attacking him, and he was certain that's what it wanted to do. He wasn't sure if the front door was unlocked, so his only chance was to get back to the garage door. He threw the flashlight at the thing as hard as he could and made a break for the house. He didn't watch to see what it did. He just sprinted in and locked the door behind him. What did he say it looked like? He described the same animal I had seen, the one the boys had been playing with in the woods. Holy shit, how did you guys sleep that night? We didn't, really. The boys share bedrooms, Timmy and Christopher in one, and Jason and Daniel in another, so I slept on the floor of one room, and Tim slept on the floor of the other. Do you really think that thing was capable of getting in the house? We didn't know what it was capable of. Did Sue Webb get back to you? I asked. You know Sue? I nodded. Well, she came to the house and checked around the yard the next morning. I even walked her back to the stream where the boys had been playing with the thing. Did she have any idea what it could be? Candace considered for a moment. She didn't know, but it struck me that she wasn't at all surprised by my story. I asked her if we could set some sort of a trap, but apparently that's illegal in Massachusetts. What about your neighbors? Did you ask them if they'd seen the thing? I did bring it up with one of our next-door neighbors. I didn't get specific. I just asked if they'd seen any wildlife around the neighborhood recently. She said it was actually surprising how few animals she'd seen. She was used to watching families of deer walking through her yard and an occasional coyote roaming around, but it had been months since she'd seen so much as a squirrel in her trees. Ugh, I wonder if the thing scared those animals off or if it... It killed them, Candace said with certainty. What was your game plan, I asked. How'd you get rid of it? We didn't. We moved, Candace said, furrowing her brow. You just picked up and moved? I asked in disbelief. What other option did I have? She asked seriously. Stumped, I shrugged my shoulders. There's absolutely no reason to believe the new homeowners will run into the same problem, she said confidently. Why not? I asked. Candace hesitated. Well, why should they? But if they do have a problem, then they'll just have to move as well. That's out of our hands. I remembered a conversation I'd had long ago with a woman who took the same stance. The problem in her home was no longer her problem. Therefore, it was no longer worth her consideration. That sucks, I said quietly. It really did, Candace replied. No, I mean, it sucks that some poor family has no idea what they signed up for when they bought your old house. I kept the edge out of my voice, but the life coach's callousness had worn away at any sympathy I could feel for her. I'm sure they'll handle it, Candace said confidently. Like you did? I asked. We moved to the new house in two weeks. I've been saging our current home regularly, and I'm confident that it's free and clear of all the negativity it once held. It feels light and free ready for a new young family. My sister sent me four new St. Benedict medals, specially blessed by her priest. I'll plant them at the four corners of the new property and sage it completely before we move anything inside. Though my dreams tell a different story, everything about the new house feels bright and happy. But I can't help but wonder if that's what the people buying Candace's property felt like before they moved in. 
To join a tribe of like-minded individuals, check out Ghosts in the Bourbonites on Facebook. It's a closed group where you can let your paranormal freak flag fly. And remember, the group's title, Ghosts in the Bourbonites, is all one word. Ask to join, and one of the moderators will happily grant you access after you've answered a security question. And if you know someone who might enjoy these suburban tales of terror, first ask if they have any good spooky stories to share, and then tell them about the podcast. This has been Ghosts and the Burbs. Good night, sleep tight, and don't forget your nightlight.